This is The Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that The Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com. D E B B I M A C K. Dot com under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. Hi, everyone. Today we have an author with an extensive and impressive background in law enforcement. He's worked in narcotics with the FBI on violent crimes. He's worked on a SWAT team. He was with the U.S. Marshals. as a co- He was co-sworn in as a U.S. Marshal, among other things. And according to his bio, was a member of the real-life Hawaii Five-O, which I found a very interesting thing. Uh, in any case, it's pretty clear where this author gets his material. Today's guest is best-selling author David Putnam. Hi, David. It's great to have Hi. you on the show today. I'm Thank so you for glad. having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, tell us about your protagonist, Bruno Johnson, and what prompted you to write about that character? What prompted you to create that particular kind of character? Well, that's kind of a, a long explanation. I've been writing for since like 1989, and I, uh, I've been, I wrote, I was, I was constantly writing. I'd written 38 manuscripts when I finally sold my 34th manuscript. Um, and I was trying everything. I tried um, police procedural, mystery, um, young adult, sci-fi. And I had four agents. I had 156 rejections when I quit counting. Um, and Bruno Johnson was just another one of those attempts to try to find a market for my writing. Um, and Bruno Johnson, he's an ex-cop, ex-con who rescues children from toxic homes in South Central Los Angeles. He couldn't do it when he was a cop because there's too many rules and regulations. So now he goes outside the law to rescue the children. I chose Bruno and made him an African-American because it adds an extra layer of conflict. When I was working for the sheriff's department, I left the jail after six months and went to work um, patrol in South Central Los Angeles. I went out with um, two African-American deputies and one was a good friend of mine. And I got to see firsthand the added layer of conflict that he had to deal with. And I thought that would um, uh, work well in my, in my books. So that's why I, I, I chose to do it that way. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm reading your first in the series, The Disposables. And Michael Connolly called it raw, powerful, and eloquent, which I have to agree with. Um, oh, thank you. Did you have direct experience with uh, seeing children in abuse situations? Is that what prompted oh, you to do Yes, and, that and you know, people, readers read for the emotion of, of yeah, that they, that's what they're in the, in the game for. They, they read for the emotion, and, and conflict is emotion. So I thought that I would also write about something that was most emotional to me. And it was the most difficult part of law enforcement was dealing with children who were abused because they had no advocate um, except for law enforcement or social services. 
yes. And social services can often be not overwhelmed. Really overwhelmed, right. yes. Not yeah. due to any fault of their own necessarily. Exactly. Um, the idea of an underground railroad is so intriguing. <laughs> what made you think of that? Well, he had to rescue the kids and he had he couldn't do it legally, so he couldn't keep the kids in the US because they'd be constantly hunting them. So he throughout the series he collects these children and sometimes I'm writing them, um, I'll turn a book into the publisher and they'll say send me an email back saying, Don't you have twelve kids now? <laughs> because I start losing I start losing track of my kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. But uh, yeah, I just thought that was a very innovative uh, approach to trying to save these kids. Well, thank you. Um, I guess I've already asked this question, but how much of your experience in law enforcement finds its way into your novels? Well, I, I tried to write a scene that was most powerful to me uh, to start the book. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's the first chapter. I just write the scene that's most powerful. And that's what I did with all the books, including Disposables. And in some cases, like The uh, Reckless, I turned that book in, and that one was the most emotional book that I had ever written. And I put a lot of background into that book to, to establish the motivation for uh, what happens. And the publisher, I sent the book to the publisher. They loved the book. but um, they said the the book actually starts on page 101. So I had to cut the first hundred pages. So um, I always try to, I always try to put my actual experiences in the books. Uh, each, like for instance, the innocence I would say is 50% true, even though I fictionalized that there are actually scenes, 50% of that book actually happen. The uh, reckless is about 90% true. The other ones have different scenes that I pulled from my experience and I just craft them to fit in with the storyline or the story arc. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, you said you, you start with um, a scene that's very emotional and then kind of build out from there. Is that kind of the way you write? Yes. And sometimes I have to build in the front too. So uh, there've been times where I would write the first, what I thought was the first chapter of the opening scene. And then I would put probably 10 chapters in front of it because it the, the wasn't working for me. So I had to make the story arc work. I had to recraft it. So it all depends. It's like putting a puzzle together sometimes. And I really enjoy writing because of that. I never know, I never know what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you know what you want to say and it kind of gets summed up in the scene and then you'd construct this plot to get there. Maybe that's kind exactly. of like. yeah. yeah, exactly. I know, I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. Let's see. Um, can you tell me, can you tell us a little bit more about how Bruno's uh, character develops over the course of the six novels? And I know that some of them are prequels. Right. Um, well, uh, Bruno, as, as I said earlier, he continually gathers more children and um, in the first three books, the uh, disposables, replacements, and the squandered, uh, the, the books, the disposable starts in the U.S. and ultimately ends in Costa Rica. So then the replacements and the squandered 
um, start in Costa Rica, and I had to have a, a strong motivation to get Bruno to come back to the U.S. to write the, that storyline. And at the conclusion of uh, the, for, the fourth book, The Vanquished, I left Bruno particularly uh, emotionally and, and physically damaged. And the publisher said, uh, great book, and, and we love it, but we don't know how you're going to pull Bruno out of this. So I thought about that, and they were probably right, because it was going to take a lot of writing to get him back on track because of what I did to him. Um, so I decided to go with a prequel, and that's what started. Uh, so I started Disposables, and I, I, I gave Bruno a lot of backstory. So on my prequel, I'm going back, and I'm actually showing all that backstory that I gave Bruno at the beginning of the first book. So mm. there's four prequels, four, there's four prequels. And um, uh, the, the first one is The Innocents. The second one is The Reckless. The third one is The Heartless. And it's already coming out in February, 2020. And the publisher just picked up the fourth and final prequel, which is The Ruthless, which will come out 2021. So now I'm back on track and I'm writing the book that, um, the current day book that comes after The, the Vanquished. So I'm all working on book nine right now. So you figured out uh, where Bruno goes from there in, in your ninth book. Right, <laughs> right, right, exactly. I had four books to think about it and how to get them out of it, out of the mess I put them in. There you go. <laughs> That's all you have to do, just write the prequels. <laughs> That's right. Let's see, uh, how would you describe your writing to someone who has never read your work but would like to learn more about it? Uh, you know, I, I try to write, I try to put the reader right where I was in the scene. So if I, if I, had a, if I was in an incident, I try to write it just the way I saw it, felt it, smelled it, uh, heard it. I try to put all those senses into the, the story. I also try to stay true to the dialogue. And people have said that they, one of the things they like about my books is the dialogue because it is true to what they think happens on the street. Mm -hmm. I also, I also, I also play heavily on police procedurals. Um, in a lot of, a lot of, because I, I read extensively in that genre, and a lot of readers, um, they accept certain things in, in the in mystery genre, even though they're not actually happening in real life. It doesn't happen. So I'll read a book, and sometimes I'll pick up, I'll take a few of those um, things that that aren't real, and keep reading if, if the craft is well done. But if there's too many of them and it turns into a fantasy, then I don't, I, I put the book down. So in my police procedurals, I try to make everything as close to what happens as possible. And I, I still have to walk the line on um, sensationalism as well. Mm-hmm, yeah. Who are your favorite uh, authors? Who inspires you? Oh, I like a lot of authors. Um, I like, currently I like Jonathan Moore. Uh, he's not very well known, but The Poison Artist and The Dark Room, those are just some fantastic books. Uh, John Sanford, um, I, I, remember, I can't get into a book because I'll read a really great book. Next book I pick up, it pales. Even though it's a good book, it pales to what I just read. So I, I drop back and I read John Sanford. I'll start rereading those books because I think those are so perfectly crafted with the voice, the character, the storyline. Um, they're just great novels. So I think John Sanford, James Lee Burke, uh, you know, all, all the big ones. Robert mm -hmm. Grace, um, absolutely. Uh, Thomas Thomas Perry. So I, I read I read the heavyweights. <laughs> uh, let's see. You have so much background in in so many 
so much experience with so many different law enforcement agencies and functions. How did you end up doing so much and have you ever considered consulting for writers? I any anytime author asks, I'm happy to, I help all kinds of authors. In fact, I think I'm probably at book 15 or 16 um, in, in, the, in the acknowledgements on some of these books. Um, but anybody who wants to email me, I'm happy to help out on these procedurals. I always, I always uh, wanted to get into the most action that I could when I was a, was, a, was a cop. So I always looked for that kind of avenue. So uh, I was on an FBI-sponsored violent crimes team, and they cross-sourced as U.S. Marshals for that. But I was also on a, a narcotics team where um, I had a, a deputy badge from Mojave County because we would leave, we'd, we'd go from San Miguel County into Arizona. Uh, and, and working violent crimes, we chased murder suspects in Arizona, Nevada, uh, because we were. We, that's why we had the, the U.S. Marshal status. Uh, I did two tours on the SWAT team. I had a great time in my career. I'd still be doing it if I didn't get. If I hadn't gotten too old. Um, then I retired. Uh, what, what happened was my big mistake was I, I left detectives and I went. I promoted to sergeant, and I, I lost my autonomy. And I ended up supervising people who were like me, which I found out then how bad that was. So um, I eventually went to internal affairs and it was just a horrible job. The worst job that I'd ever had in, in the sheriff's department. Did that for a year, I was going crazy. So one day I was um, on the computer, just messing around in my office and uh, pulled up Hawaii and saw that they were, had an opening for a special agent. I applied, thinking that I didn't have a shot at it. They called me for an interview. I flew out to Hawaii, did a two-hour interview, the most extensive oral I've ever taken. They asked me every question, uh, you know, case law, uh, procedure, all, all kinds of questions for two hours. Um, and then they hired me. So my wife grew up in Hawaii, so we sold here. We, we kept the house in, as a rental, and we sold. I, I had a library of 6,000 first editions signed by the authors. But in Hawaii, the humidity would have tore them up, would have, would have wrecked the books. So I had to sell those for a song because I, uh, we had to leave in a hurry. Um, and then we went. I went to work for Hawaii 5.0. And that was an absolute culture shock because uh, they, they have the, what I know people have heard, and it's true, the Loha spirit. And so they handle their, their crime the same way. So I did my first a case. It was an assault case. I worked it up, got a warrant for the guy, and I told my boss. I went to the boss and said, I'm going to go kick this guy's door and take him to jail. He goes, whoa, whoa, we don't do that here. I go, what do you mean? He goes, he looks at the calendar and he says, um, call him up and have him come in on Thursday. We'll have the bus here on Thursday. So <laughs> they don't chase crooks there. It's an island. So you call the crook up, they come in on a designated day, and you drive them over in a bus and, you know, and you book them. So that was my first you know, real, realization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How civilized, exactly. So it was an interesting place, but also, even though there's there's 1.3 million people in the state of Hawaii, 900,000 of them were on Oahu, but even so, everybody knows everybody else. So you can't do any kind of investigation without everybody finding out about it. So that was an interesting, you know, in California, Southern California, you know, a crook comes through from LA and holds up a bank, it's, it's, it's hard to backtrack him. But in Hawaii, it's interesting. It is the safest city for its size in the United States. 
hmm. which wasn't a place I needed to go to because I wanted more action. <laughs> well, I still envy you getting to live in Hawaii, although I'm sure <laughs> it was probably expensive. Um, do you have any advice for listeners who either want to go into law enforcement or would like to write about it? Um, sure. Uh, law enforcement is a fun career. And even though people are saying, uh, even though there's a lot of um, disgruntled, uh, society is disgruntled toward law enforcement right now, it, the, the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. Um, and it'll come back again. Uh, but still, it's, it's a fun job. And if they start, I would never do it now with, with, with all the cameras and videos and media, um, because that's not the way I was brought up in law enforcement. I don't know if I could, I could deal with all the, but if you're just starting out and that's what you're used to, I would say, I, I would, I still highly recommend the job. It is a fun job. Um, as far as writing, if you want to um, write about law enforcement, there are different ways uh, that I would do it if I wasn't a cop. I would go on ride-alongs for, for one, but also the citizen patrol program that most agencies have. They have a, a citizen patrol academy and you get to go and learn laws of arrest and they actually put you in your own car and you drive around and you call out different situations to the cops that come out and handle them. Um, so you really get a firsthand look and, and training by the cops and it's all free and it's all volunteer. So that, I think that would be the best way to get into it. That's fantastic. Good advice. Um, have you ever had any thoughts about who would play Bruno Johnson if they made it into a movie? <laughs> <or TV? laughs> uh, oh, sure. Um, you know, uh, oh, shoot, I, I can't think of the guy's name. Uh, Denzel Washington is the first one. Uh, Will Smith, you know, those, those kind of guys. But, you know, that's pie in the sky. Uh, but any well, great actor not? would. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, the thought. The father's a good character too, you know, and Morgan Freeman would do an excellent job of as Bruno's father. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we finish up? Mm. No, not, not you've covered you like it pretty well. Okay. So um, in any case, it was really great to have you on David. Thank you so thank much you. for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. And um, as always, I'd like to remind you to please, please leave a review of the podcast on your service of choice, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, or another host. Um, please leave a review for the podcast if you enjoyed it. If you're watching on YouTube, YouTube, don't hesitate to uh, like and share the video if you wish. Also, um, I'm continuing to add content accessible only to supporters on my Patreon page for the podcast. My Patreon page link is on my website, www.debbymac.com. And finally, I have a surprise guest coming on next week. Um, it's rather unusual for me to do an interview one week after the next, but um, he just released his latest book in the Elvis Cole, Joe Pike, privatized series. I'm speaking of best-selling author Robert Crace. Until next time, thanks for listening and happy reading.